Hey, Amanda. Julian. Hi, girly. Julian Pensavalli. Amanda Viegas. That's it. Um, I feel like we've known each other for like 20 years. How does that work? You texted me about running around naked on my birthday because that's how I came into this world. Yes. Hell yes. I feel like we're soul <laughs> sisters from a past life. Hi, Jillian here. And welcome to Let the Women Do the Work the podcast where we look at true crime from the perspectives of the women involved. Because in all these stories, there's a woman on the sidelines, in the courtroom, at home, and in the streets holding together the threads of support for a story they believe in. And in this episode, we're going to go all those places with someone who was a fighter in the long, arduous journey for someone else's freedom. Amanda Villegas is a wrongful conviction advocate based in El Paso, Texas. She's particularly focused on providing support for the loved ones of the wrongfully convicted. She knows what it's like to be on that roller coaster fighting from the outside for someone you love. And let me be clear, no one's really cut out for that sort of thing. As a matter of fact, no one should ever even go through it. But if anyone's up to the task, it's Amanda. You have to be a little crazy. You know, my family... When I told them I was dating somebody who had a life sentence, you know, they're law enforcement and right. Yeah. And they, they learn, they know me. So they know, like, don't push up against Amanda because whatever you say isn't going to mean shit to her. Once I have my mind right and set on something, nobody's going to change my mind about it. So I was like, yeah, dad, I'm dating someone. Yeah. He's got a life sentence. So expect a letter from a jail in the mailbox. It's for me. (laughs) And they're like, okay. (laughs) <laughs> They're not going to argue it. <laughs> they were very supportive. <laughs> yeah, they knew better than to yeah, argue with yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> that person who she was dating and would eventually common law marry, have kids with, and build a life with was Daniel Viegas. Daniel was locked up as a 16-year-old for the double murder of two other young men in El Paso, Armando Lazo and Bobby England. And no, he didn't do it but he did spend over 20 years in prison for that blatant and highly consequential miscommunication. Quick side note, Keith Morrison, yes, that Keith Morrison from Dateline, looked into this case for several years, and he made a documentary on Daniel's story called A Fatal Confession. We'll be playing clips from that piece throughout the episode, so buckle up. There were certain high-profile cases that you hear about, and they were definitely one of them. You know, it was all over the newspaper, all over the news. Mondo and Bobby were good kids, not gangbangers. On the street, the news of their murders traveled in worried whispers, mouth to mouth. Fear infected the neighborhood. But something else, too. The will to brag. It was 1993, and Daniel was a teenager. A teenager who was, admittedly, kind of a hothead. After this drive-by shooting became the talk of the town, Daniel mentioned something about it to his cousin while they were hanging out. He said he'd done it, but he was just trying to sound tough. Remember, he was a hothead. Anyway, the cousin was then questioned by police, which led the police to Daniel. Texas law allows police to speak with minors without a parental presence or parental permission, which, whatever, we don't have time to get into what a great idea that is. So one night, Daniel was brought into a police station, interrogated for hours, and by morning, investigators had a full signed confession from him. But how they got it is subject to scrutiny. The detective who interviewed him, Alfonso Marquez, was described by several young men in this story as an intimidator of sorts. Daniel's account of the night goes a little like this. 
He was handcuffed to a chair in an office, and he was alone with Marquez, who was seated behind a typewriter. Detective Marquez typed away as Daniel started talking. And when Daniel denied his involvement in the crime, Marquez ripped the paper from the typewriter and instructed Daniel to start over. As the hours slipped by, things got more threatening. Here's Daniel's word on it. He slapped me in the back of the head, and he said, look, I know you did this, you little punk. He said, are you going to make a statement or what? Or am I going to have to kick your ass? He said, don't. He said, if you make a statement, if you're a juvenile, he said, it won't be so bad on you. He said, if you don't make a statement, he said, I'm going to make sure you get the electric chair and I'm going to fry your ass. So they treat you as a juvenile if you confess to committing a murder. But if you didn't confess, he would make sure you got the death penalty. Yeah. And he was going to pull the switch on it. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's worth noting here that Detective Marquez also interviewed Daniel's cousin, as well as the only other witness to the crime, a boy by the name of Jesse Hernandez. Both have described their interrogation experiences as frightening. Jesse even said in his interview with Keith Morrison that he nearly confessed to the crime too, out of intimidation. Marquez tried to get him to confess. And Jesse said he nearly did, had his mom not picked him up and put an end to the whole thing. He could have been Daniel, which leads me to believe a lot of young men could have. In 1994, Daniel was tried for capital murder, resulting in a hung jury. He was tried again the next year, but it didn't go well. The public defender representing him only called one witness, and the signed confession cast a long shadow of guilt over the courtroom. Daniel was sentenced to life in prison, essentially for being a teenager, loud-mouthed and ultimately manipulable. Beyond that, there was no evidence. Zero. Flash forward over a decade. Daniel's used up all his appeals, and with the help of an El Paso contractor, friend, and all-around good guy, John Mimbella, Daniel submitted a writ of habeas corpus which is sort of a Hail Mary pass to get one last day in court to undo an unlawful conviction. His team cited insufficient counsel and, you know, actual innocence as their reasons. He had a less than 2% chance of getting it granted and eventually getting freed. That's not hyperbole either. That's the real number. And at this point, Daniel's case gathered national attention. A movement for his freedom was thriving on the ground in El Paso. And that's when Amanda walked into his life. In 2011, while Daniel fought once more for his life back with the writ of habeas corpus, Amanda was a single mom living alone in an apartment with her daughter. I got home with her. She was throwing a fit, whatever. I had the news on. And when I'm watching the news trying to change her, I saw Daniel's sister slash my cousin slash through marriage on the news. And I was like, what the fuck is she doing on there? So I reached out to her. I asked her, you know, what was going on? What were you on the news for? Because I didn't have time to sit and watch the actual story. She was just outside somewhere, like, um, silent protesting something. And that's when she told me about her brother. To be clear, Amanda and Daniel aren't blood-related. But it was eye-opening for her to learn about the situation her cousin's family was in. Daniel, by this point, had spent half his life in prison. And here was a moment for the public to breathe life into the fight against that injustice and get involved. So I researched it a little bit and I was like, yeah, this guy got totally fucked. Like, I am not down for that at all. I do not know this world. So I told her, what do you want from me? Like to support you? I'll go out there and protest or whatever. She's like, write him a letter. And I was like, girl, I don't even know how to write to an inmate. I've never spoken to somebody who's behind bars. I don't know what to do. Like, what do I do? And that's how we started it. I was actually... um, 
having a little get together at my apartment and we were all drinking. And I remember writing that in the letter, like, hey, we're all giving a cheers up to you and we'll keep in contact. And what's your favorite music? Who's your favorite artist? Things like that. I didn't get too like deep into it. Just trying to give him some normalcy of the free world of somebody writing to him in the free world. And then he, he wrote back and uh, I remember getting the letter in, in the uh, mailbox and I didn't even make it home to open it. I, I pulled over into a mattress store. I, I just remember all the specifics because I was like, I have to read what he said. From there, they just started talking about all those small things you talk about when you want to get to know someone. They discovered they both like Prince and Wu-Tang Clan. And he told Amanda more about the context of how all that normalcy left his life. Yeah, he was more intense than I was, but he seemed more mature. He's We've got a uh, like a nine-year age difference between us. And he was joking, like, you were playing with Barbie dolls when it got locked up. And I was like, yeah. Amanda grew up as a self-proclaimed military brat, moving from place to place before settling down in El Paso. When she eventually did live there, she lived in a different part of town from Daniel. She described her side of town, Far East it's called, as a quiet, working-class neighborhood. And Daniel grew up in Northeast El Paso, which had more reported crime and gang activity. It's the part of town where this drive-by shooting took place. And because of that difference, Amanda grew up with a different view of the police. She genuinely saw them as protectors. So as she read up on the way they, as she says, fucked Daniel over, she was nervous to meet him in person. She could feel her perceptions of the criminal justice system changing and her life changing, too. Yeah. So the first time I went to go see Daniel and everyone always tells me, like, it's so weird that you were so worried about what he was going to think or how he was going to judge you on your life. I never thought of it like I never saw that. I didn't know how inmates were supposed to come off like buff because that's all they do is work out or really fat because that's all they do is eat honey buns. I didn't know. So I was like, oh my God, this guy's older. Like I was imagining him with like a big old beard and like sitting down like, girl, what have you done with your life? Like, like I was, like I said, I was a single (laughs) mom struggling financially, didn't go to school, uh, college. So I was like, oh my God, he's going to be like, I've been in here for this long and I would have done this and you... You're just barely making it. Like, that's what I was thinking he was going to say. And I was like, fuck, I'm going to get lectured by this guy who has a life sentence. So I sat down and they brought him to me. And I was like, oh, yeah, you got to be fucking kidding me. And he's like hot. He was like super buff at that time. And... He sat down and he, I'm just staring at him. I didn't know you had to pick up the fucking phone to to hear him. So I'm just staring like all doughy eyed and I'm like, wow. And then he's pointing to the phone and I'm like, oh, the phone. I was like, okay. So I picked it up and he's like, hi. He's like, I like your tattoo because I have uh, an arm tattoo. And I was like, Oh, so I was explaining it to him what it meant. And he's like, oh, I have some tattoos kind of like that. And he undid his jumper. And I was like, just looking at his body. And I was like, holy fuck. And then late that, like right after that, he told me, hey, I apologize. Like I should not have taken off my jumper like that. And I was like, do not be fucking sorry. (laughs) Yeah, you're welcome. Like that shit was hot. 
but when we started talking it was like you know we've been friends forever like we were just talking like normal and I was all goofy and stuff and I didn't get the vibe that I thought I was gonna get or the lecture that I thought I was gonna get and you know we're just shooting the shit getting to know each other and it was all good it made me more relaxed after that I was like oh I could totally see him as often as possible and get to know him and that body yeah, it went from like, what's your favorite color to holy shit, you're hot yeah. real quick. Yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> and then we couldn't touch. So it was just using your imagination. Hey. <laughs> Amanda was all in on Daniel and the fight for his freedom. She began immersing herself in documentaries, podcasts, books, anything that would inform her about wrongful convictions and how to make them right. She also began learning about what it took to date someone in prison. At this point, Daniel was in solitary confinement at county jail in El Paso because his case had become high profile. The only way he could get out of that box was if he had a visitor. He's like, you know, if you're going to come visit me, I have to have you guarantee that you can come both days because that's my only time out. So I need that promise from you. And I'm like, no matter what, I said, no matter what, I will be there. So with my job, I was like, you guys can fucking fire me. If I cannot go to these, I will not work for you. I remember there was once where my truck broke down on the highway and I started walking. I was like, I'm going to fuck. Like, I'm going to make it there. So no matter what. And the girlfriend of the decade award goes to. Yeah, you know who. Because not only did Amanda commit to these visits, she adapted to all kinds of ways that prison impacted her dating life. It was hard, illuminating, and even sometimes kind of hilarious especially someone who's been in for so many years because you know what too they they learn about dating also from magazines and books so you'll notice like those little things and it's like they're acting kind of like we're in a movie or something like it's not how it is but yeah there was a like the arguments that we would get into this was like I learned not to do this this is a big difference you know, we'd be on a phone call, a 45-minute phone call. So if we're arguing, like, he'd be like, where were you? Like, you didn't answer my phone call. And, you know, that would cause an argument, let's say, just like any other couple out here. But if I hung up on him with anger, if I was like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm tired of hearing your shit. Click. He couldn't, like, just call me back easily, you know? Or if he hung up on me, I couldn't be like, oh, I'm going to call him 10,000 times now. I'm going to text them or I'm going to, I couldn't do that. That was a respect level. That was like a big no-no I had to learn. Like no hanging up on each other because you got to either figure it out or not figure it out for that phone call. That was a big difference. And Amanda stuck it out until she could finally be with him in person with no glass between them. In 2014, after Daniel had been granted a new trial, he was released on bond. There was a media frenzy and it was a funny position for Amanda. She wasn't his wife or a relative. She was his girlfriend, which isn't something we officially stamp on paper. At this point, she'd been by his side for three years. But in this situation, that meant she was just another hand in the crowd of onlookers. She told his team she was with him, but they didn't get it. It was a whole scene. And there's like like a little small clip you see, like because my niece, which is also my cousin, Mexican shit. She was like, you can touch him now. You can touch him, touch his arm. And I was like, okay. And you see my stupid hand in the crowd, like uh, touching him. 
And then um, he drove off. Then we went to do all this media stuff. And when we got to a restaurant, that's when I was able to, like he grabbed me and hugged me. But like, it was so funny because we get to the restaurant and he's so, he had just walked out after 19 years in prison, right? So we walked into the restaurant, we're opening the door to walk in and then he just stays there and John Mambellas turns around and he's like, come on, like you can come in. And Daniel's like, I'm just so used to somebody like a guard, you know, somebody being like, of course, I'll open it in, I'll let you in, you come in now, you know? So we were like, oh, poor Daniel, like he was so institutionalized. Yeah. And too, like the little, little things that he would do while he was, when he was first freed, it was fun to watch. Like the day after he got out, we went to the gas station to get coffee and just watching him like trip out, like, look at this piece of cardboard. And I was like, that's a sleeve that you put on the coffee cup so it's, it doesn't burn your hand. And he's like, what? That's crazy. It was truly amazing to watch and to teach, teach him how to do stuff. And and also like side story, I don't know if we're about if we can say this on here, but I remember I'm like showing him how to watch porn on his phone. Okay. I was like, you know, you don't have to buy magazines anymore. It's real fucking easy now. So I was like, this is the websites you could go to. And it's fun. And he's like, okay. So he was at his mom and I forgot he's not used to technology or everything that we know and you know how you get a lot of viruses if you click bait on the on the all the ads and stuff right i forgot to tell him not to fucking do that so he was at his house and he calls me he's like i don't know what the fuck i did i don't know what i did but i was watching the porn how you showed me and it's saying that i did something illegal on here and i was like oh shit no don't read that don't don't follow that you got a virus We'll tell your brother to clean it out. It's embarrassing, whatever. Like stuff like that where I'm like, shit, I forgot to tell you that part. So Daniel came out mentally as a 16-year-old still in every aspect. Uh, He was very immature in a lot of things. And the very first year he was out, you know, he promised his mom he would stay with her for a year. And thankfully, I lived like five minutes away from her, so... I would see him every day and whatever, but I started seeing pretty quickly that he, which I can't put a lot of fault on him. Like, how are you going to come out into the free world and instantly be in a committed relationship? Like, I already knew that there was going to be issues with that because he did. He had a lot of affairs. We've talked about it before. That first year, there was like a lot going on with other women. And I was just trying to let him write it out and learn how to treat a woman because you got to think too Daniel was raised in the system since he was a teenager he was raised by murderers by pimps and they taught him how to love like they taught him how to be to a woman so when he comes out here I'm telling him no that is not how you treat a woman and that is not what you do so at the same time I'm still with him and I'm you know drama was happening and I'm like this is not okay like I just need to teach you and you need to understand and finally yeah like he got out of that we moved in together and he grew and he'll say every day he he says to this day like the man I am now is because of you like you taught me how how to be this man and I am always gonna be thankful for that like always yeah that's so much responsibility Amanda like 
How were you in that time? Aside understand being so the maybe the most understanding person on earth in that <laughs> moment. I mean, what were you? You had a life too. And now not only are you helping this person who just, of course, went through this horrible traumatizing experience for 19 years. Where's Where are you in all of this? That's a good question. Um, I put myself on the back burner because I felt like him and, and my children and advocacy was was first. And then I was, you know, just trying to be there so much for other people. In this chapter, he really needed somebody like me because if it was anybody else, women won't stand for that shit like for, for too long. A lot of women won't. And I knew I could and I could deal with it because I loved him. Amanda and Daniel squeezed a lot into their four years together while he was out on bond. They were common-law married. They began building a family. She stuck by his side, and this came with a lot of attention. She had to do interviews, including with the one and only Keith Morrison. And you know what? You just have to hear this story. It's the stuff of legend. Man, uh, I remember getting off of work. They were like, okay, we're going to interview at this time, at this place, whatever. Daniel... And I drove over there and they're like, we're going to do your makeup. I had just given birth to our daughter. So I was feeling, you know, like icky and tired and whatever. And I walked in, I started looking around for where he was and he just popped out of a, a corner and he was like, hi, Amanda. And I'm like, oh my God, hi. And I'm like, all right, I'm down, Keith. Like, let's do this. Like I, me, myself, I've never tried to adapt you could be the president. I'm still going to fucking talk to you how the fuck I talk to you. So um, he's like, do you want anything to drink or do you want something to eat? And I'm like, no, no. And he's like, you know, I have Diet Cokes. And I looked at the table and it's just full of Diet Cokes. And I was like, Keith, ugh. Diet Coke's really bad for you. And he was like, oh, I know. I've heard. I've heard that before. And then like we're miking up. We're about to start the interview. And... Robert Dean is a producer and he was behind Keith and uh, I was like please just don't croak before I get through this interview with you <laughs> and then Dean looks at me like no don't say that and I'm like well fuck I don't know and so Keith just starts cracking up like his face got all red and he was like nobody's ever told me something like that ever and Dean was like oh my god I can't believe this girl's cracking hard ass jokes on him and I was like oh I'm sorry but I'm serious don't die let me get through this fucking interview <laughs> so I'm sure you can tell by this point that humor is something Amanda cherishes and leans on she knows she's good at making people laugh but she also harnessed a sense of purpose by leaning into advocacy she was also busy organizing discussion groups of women with incarcerated partners she was involved with Daniel's team and their path forward and she was keeping her family together. Remember, they had kids. Well, when she got pregnant, that presented its own crisis of decision-making. Daniel was a young father when he first went to prison all those years ago. He was nervous about not being an in-person father for another baby. But they made the decision to move forward and have a child. And then they had another. Daniel's trial date was actually bumped back because it originally landed on Amanda's due date. They were busy building their lives under the threat of it getting taken away should Daniel go back to prison. And the prosecution knew this. So leading up to his third trial, 
they attempted to make Daniel an offer he couldn't refuse. But Amanda could. Hey girl, HelloFresh is here. I love HelloFresh so much. You know how we feel about America's number one meal kit. Come on. <laughs> Who needs coffee when you have HelloFresh? We don't need it. You fam, you know all of this. HelloFresh is the meal delivery kit that gives you the pre-portioned ingredients. You get exactly what you need. You can cook these dinners or lunches or whatever in like 30 minutes or less. A lot of them use like one pot. Also, I'm going to say this again. When you have HelloFresh in the fridge, you always know what's for dinner. You never have to have the yeah. argument at 4.30 every day. Just my family. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah no. <laughs> No, um, it's also like 72% cheaper than going out to eat at a restaurant. And it's even cheaper than grocery shopping. And again, like you go to the grocery store and you just need a little bit of oregano. They give you a whole like three pounds of it. No, no, no. That yeah. is so wasteful. It's so expensive. HelloFresh sends you exactly what you need. And get this. HelloFresh has all kinds of menus, but their newest one is the Mediterranean menu. And it's filled with fresh fruits, veggies, nuts, olive oils, and fiber packed whole grains. Like they are nailing it all the time. You know, and it's hard because HelloFresh now has 30 dinner recipes to choose from every single week. You want to hear what I'm eating this week? Sure. One pan smashed black bean tacos. One Stop pan. It. Silky Sicilian penne, my drag name, and <laughs> lemon tortelloni Palermo. Are you kidding me? How delicious do all of those sound? 30 minutes. Tortelloni Palermo. You kiss your mother with that mouth? I sure do. It's <laughs> nice and lemony. Fam, we love HelloFresh so much. You got to get in on it. So go to HelloFresh.com slash women16 and use code women16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. Yeah, one more time. That's go to HelloFresh.com slash women16. Use code women16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. That means you're sending meals to your friends. Ah, I love HelloFresh. Number one meal kit for a reason. America's number one meal kit. That's all I'm saying. If you've been listening to the show, you know the deal with Alfred, please. Plead guilty, but maintain your innocence, they say. They're contradictions. They're bluff cards for prosecutors. They're ridiculous. And after the West Memphis Three case, when Damien Eccles, Jesse Miss Kelly, and Jason Baldwin were offered one and accepted it, there was an explosion of Alfred pleas nationwide. Now, it's worth saying here, there are all different kinds of Alfred pleas. They come from prosecutors with all different kinds of footing in a case. And the pleas themselves offer up all different things. Some offer shortened sentences if taken. Some offer probation. Daniels was like that of the West Memphis Three. If he took it, he could walk free, be with his family, and resume the life that he and Amanda had so diligently built together. But don't get it twisted. It's not an olive branch. It's a threat. It's the prosecution saying, don't fight for what you really want because you can't beat us. So take this deal instead. It's operating on the assumption that the prosecution's case is solid. But breaking news, it wasn't. In the months leading up to the trial, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals ruled that Daniel's confession from that night all those years ago could not be used as evidence this time around. Without that, what kind of evidence could the state have? Yeah, what, ooh, what is that? Is that the familiar scent of gaslighting? Oh yeah, Amanda, take it from here. And to me, in my head, I was like, these motherfuckers kept Daniel out waiting for this third trial so that he could start a family, so he could get comfortable, so he could be happy. And then they want to scare him and be like, well, we're going to go to trial. I guess you should just, just take the plea. That's what they fucking did. I was like, I see what they're doing. And I understand, Daniel, why you're fucking scared. Because when you went to prison as a teenager, you had a newborn. You had a newborn daughter and then you got fucked and you got a life sentence. And now you have a newborn 
again, which is our daughter. And now they're saying, take the plea so you don't have to repeat what you did last time. And now you can raise your daughter out here. Amanda was fully studied up on Alfred pleas. So when Daniel's attorney told him he had 48 hours to consider the deal, Amanda got to work. So I said, let's go home. I'm going to tell you about what I've been trying to tell you about, because now you're going to shut up and listen, because I need to explain this plea deal to you. And um, we sent our kids off with my in-laws. And for two days, we were just arguing back and forth about all the what ifs and and the fears and the all that shit. And at the same time, I was telling John Mambella, like, he's not sure. Daniel's not sure what he wants. I'm trying to show him. John was like, let me call Jason Baldwin. Jason flew him in and Jason took the Alfred plea too. And Jason and Daniel were going back and forth. I remember we went to go eat. Everywhere we were going, they would just kept talking about it, crying, getting frustrated. Jason's like, dude, I don't know. You have kids. Just take the plea so you can raise him. And then 30 minutes later, Jason's like, don't fucking take it. I think you could win it. And I'm like, I'm looking at both of them because I've already tried myself in the dog fight. And it, I'm looking at both of them. And I'm like, come on, Jason, like, just do it. See? So at the end, Jason tells him, if you fight this case, Daniel, and you go all the way with it, you'll be able to be doing it for the ones that couldn't, for the ones who had to take the Alfred plea. And Daniel broke down. He was like, that's it. Okay, we're going to do it. We're going full force. And I was like, okay, no changing minds. I said, we haven't told your parents that we're going to fight, go to trial. Because you have to think like his mom, she's been there since day one. So she's exhausted too. She's like, I just want this shit over with. Just take the offer, please. Let's just move on. Fuck what everyone else thinks. Fuck it. And she always says like, Amanda came in with fresh eyes and a bushy tail and ready to fight. She took on where where I left off. So I'm more like, now fuck this. So I was afraid to tell his parents that we're not taking the plea and we're going to trial because I knew they've gone through two trials before this. I was like, fuck, they're going to be like, oh, you got to be fucking kidding me. But they weren't. They were all in support. His, His whole family. We told my family too. Everybody was like, we trust you guys. If you guys think this is what it's it needs to be done, how it needs to be done, let's do it. And we're like, all right, we're in, let's go. So they fought. They prepped for trial, his team, his family, and Amanda. Now, even though she'd been in this fight for years by this point, she'd never actually been to one of Daniel's trials. So Daniel's family taught her how to cope with her emotions in the courtroom. When the day came, she brought a notebook with her. It's a really small detail, but I really loved that she did that. So I was trying to write notes that I could pass on to his attorney while we were listening to shit. But mainly, I know when we were going through the jury pick, I was taking notes of the jurors, um, who was paying attention, who was it. And I look back at the notes and I'm like, this girl, there was a girl putting on press on nails. It really fucking pissed me <gasps> off. And like, I was looking at her, she was up at the top putting on her press ons and I was like, fucking bitch with the nails and I could see on the information about each juror I remember it showed that she was like a bartender I'm like I'm gonna fucking see where you work I was so pissed (laughs) I was so pissed I was like this is my husband's life you fucking dick and then when the prosecutors were talking I was like I have a lot of like scribbling because I was just so angry so I was digging my pen into the notebook just trying to put it into that because I didn't want to get kicked out for saying some stupid ass shit or yelling at a prosecutor because I know like his mom and the other two trials she got kicked out because she couldn't handle the lies that they were spewing so they were like no more you need to stay out so that's what the notebook was for 
And then I would slip him a note here and there, like of encouragement, because he couldn't talk to him. But me and John Mimbella had our notes that we would slip in. So, you know, you would see the attorney looking at like, okay, they said, don't forget about this. Don't forget. They said, I love you, baby. It's going to be okay. And they're like, oh, shit, that's for Daniel. <laughs> Give it to Daniel. <laughs> yeah. And in a seemingly both badass and risky move, Daniel's attorney decided to call no witnesses when it was their turn. The team was ready to move forward with this, but before they did, they ran it by Amanda. Our lawyer said, I'm going to arrest. He tells Daniel, I'm going to arrest. We're not going to bring up any witnesses. And Daniel said, well, I need to ask Amanda if she's going to be okay with that. So the lawyer says, okay, well, let's go talk to Amanda. They bring me into this little closet area in the courtroom, and it's three of his lawyers, me, Daniel, and it's dark. And his lawyer says, I'm going to rest. I'm not bringing up anybody. And I said, why? That doesn't make sense. Why? We have stuff that we can show. Like, let's do it. And he's like, no, because if I do, then it gives the prosecutor a chance to rebuttal, and it's just going to go back and forth, and it's not good. And I was like, I don't know. I feel weird about it. I don't think this is the right thing to do. And then I looked at his lawyer. I was sitting down. They're all men standing up around me. And I'm like, bring me your wife. And the lawyer <laughs> looks at me like, uh, excuse me? And I was like, bring your wife here. I said, if she trusts you, then she'll tell me the right thing to do. And he's like, okay. So he tells his son, who's also an attorney, go get your mom. <laughs> she was there at the court. And she's like an older Mexican lady. She doesn't really speak a lot of English. They get her a chair. She sits in front of me, and I'm like a mafia style. And I'm like, do you trust your husband? And she's like, yes, I do. I said, okay, this is what he wants to do. Would you trust him enough to let him make that decision for my husband? And she said, mija, which means my daughter. I would. I, I trust him. I would do it. So I said, okay, then we rest. Then we rest. And then she hugged me. She hugged me and she said in Spanish, it's going to be okay. I trust him. I said, okay. That was it. And I remember having a conversation with uh, one of my best friends before the trial had ended. And I remember telling her, like, we were at a bonfire. And I was like, if this goes not the way that it needs to go. I was like, I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do because it's a lot of pressure on me because I'm the one who made him decide to go to trial. I said, if it goes bad, if it's a guilty, like I'm literally going to have to take off, be on my own, like not my kids, nobody for, not forever, but I'm going to need a break because mentally I'm going to be fucked up. And she's like, it's okay. Like, I'll I, I'll take care of the kids. I'll. It was just that. Like, we were preparing for all sorts of stuff and scenarios. But the tension in the courtroom was insane. It was really insane. It was really uh, thick. I could feel the feelings of his parents and, and his family. I was like, I hope I did the right thing. Yeah. Which I did. Which you did. Hell yeah, you did. <laughs> so what was that you know there's that footage that famous footage of Daniel I mean his legs go out from under him when they the verdict comes in right. and he's not guilty what was it like for you what was your experience hearing those words 
I remember standing up and screaming and sitting back down. And at that time, I really didn't have a relationship with God or whatever, but I like raised my hand in the air, like to whatever higher power is out there. Like, fuck, thank you fucking shit for all of this. Thank you, energy. Thank you, God. Thank you, a higher power. I don't know what the fuck, but thank you. I rose my hand in the air and I looked down. The night before, we had Daniel and I had a discussion. And we were like, okay, after the, it's going to be not guilty, obviously. So we're like, after the not guilty, we're going to get interviewed and we're going to speak our truth and we're going to, we already had it like, I'll talk to these people, you can talk to them, and this is what we're gonna say, and blah, blah, blah. No, it was not guilty. Daniel falls to the floor, he got up, he, you know, the judge said some nice words to him, and I already knew Daniel's, he's gonna wanna book it. Like he's, so we rushed past all the media, we go into the elevator, and inside the elevator was one of the prosecutors who had been on Daniel's case that, that ended up getting off of the case. And he was in the elevator. So we get in and I see him and I'm like, oh, this is fucking awkward. And he's like, I heard the good news. And Daniel said, yes, sir. And then they shook hands. And I I mean, he's a good guy. I think he got off the case maybe because he knew it wasn't the right thing to do. They shook hands. And then we went down to the parking garage and Daniel's like, do you realize we're going <laughs> to... Daniel said, do you realize... We're going to spend the rest of our lives together. I said, yeah, but we left the kids in the courthouse. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I've never felt so much like Keith Morrison in my life. Oh, my God. Here I am crying. God. I said, we left the kids in the courthouse. He's like, oh, shit. Well, update. (laughs) So, Daniel and I have decided to split ways and end our journey. It has done its course. And that chapter is closed. It was a good run. (laughs) I feel like we were meant to be with each other for this time period. And I'm like... Like, I'll never talk ill will about him. Maybe secretly. Just kidding. (laughs) I love him as a father. I love him as a friend. Yeah. And it's just... uh, I was ready to move on, you know? I was ready to find my own way. And so was he. And we're good. Like, we're we're very good, surprisingly. We had our moments in the beginning... But we've been co-parenting really well. And he's very supportive of me. I'm very supportive of him. It's just, it's it's very different right now. Without him. It's very different without him in the advocacy world. Because he was always right next to me. And mm-hmm. It's okay. I'll learn. I'll learn how to do it without him. But we're doing great things separately. Yeah. Right now. I think it's so important for some people to hear women in your position to hear. I think maybe it could have been 
you could have felt a lot of pressure to stay together with to force something to work that all these years later, like you said, had run its course just because of how it would look or what it means that you are this sort of entity together, the wrongfully convicted and the supportive, brilliant, tough, badass wife, like what it would look like to people. And I commend you both for listening to yourselves and to each other and sort of realizing we did amazingly good work together. But that's kind of it now. That's, you know, that you're here, you're at this certain point wherever you are now. I think that's commendable and very important for people to hear. Yeah. And I, I, you're right. That's exactly what it was. A lot of it is if the system wouldn't have fucked him over mentally and wouldn't have done what they did, maybe we would have been okay. You know, maybe we would have survived it. So a lot of my frustration and anger comes from these wrongful convictions that fucking destroy people mm-hmm. mentally. And, and they live in their own silent prison out here. They live in their own silent prison every day. And it's just not fair to the ones that love them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like. We knew what we were getting ourselves into, but not completely. But if the system would just fucking do it right, we would avoid it all of this. That's where a lot of my resentment and anger comes from is that is would we have survived it if he hadn't spent 19 years in prison? Maybe. But there's just a certain point when you just have to, for your own mental stability, there's just <laughs> limits where I have to say, no, no, like no more. I am proud of myself. At the end of the day, I am proud of myself. I'm proud of him. I really am. And I love to see how he interacts with people now. Because like he said, like you made me into this person. So it's like watching something that you helped with. And I get to watch him from afar and be like, Fuck, he's a good person. Like he's he's done good. And I'm proud of that. I'm very proud of him. Amanda is still actively in the fight against wrongful convictions. She still talks with loved ones of the wrongfully convicted, and she describes herself as a little crazy after what she's been through, like yelling at teens in Walmart to know their rights. Shit like that. Classic Amanda stuff. And then there's the ongoing project of co-parenting her kids with Daniel. So Daniel always says, our two oldest, you know, they're going to go to college and be great things. And so we have to start saving money for them. And the three-year-old, we have to save for her bail money because she's she's fucking crazy. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, for sure. But our kids are very trained. They know their rights. They know what limit to trust authority. My six-year-old, we were actually in the news not too long ago because my six-year-old, he's in kindergarten. He got left at the bus stop when he wasn't supposed to. And it was a whole situation. And because Daniel is who he is, Daniel went on his social media to talk about it. Like, Hey, the district left my kid unattended and he didn't know where the fuck he was. And he was scared and, and whatever, whatever. And the the news got a hold of it. And they're like, their titles to their story from, for the news was a once convicted murderer, uh, is blasting. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, is blasting the the school district because they left his kid. And and it's just shit like that. We can't just do normal things. And I told Daniel that. Mm -hmm. I was like, you cannot go on media and vent about shit because you'll end up in the news, which is what happened. Like, we can't do that like that. So um, in that situation, I I saw how trained my, my children are because they had to get somebody to 
to question my kid about the situation. So they ended up doing it at Daniel's work. And Daniel's boss, who's a defense attorney, was like, girl, you got your kids perfect. Like, she's like, I wish you could have seen how they tried to question him. And he was just, they were like an example she said was like, they were like, so if, do you know the difference between a truth and lie? And he was like, "Mm, yeah. And they're like, so if I told you the sky was green, would that be the truth or a lie? And my six-year-old's like, well, it depends on how you see it. Like, do you see it green? (laughs) She said the the guy was so annoyed that he couldn't get him to answer yes or no, that it was always like, well, I don't know, (laughs) like a six year old. Is there a storm coming? Is there a hurricane on the horizon? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So she's like, he did perfect in that interview. Amanda is turning inward now. It's time to bravely, finally focus on herself. I'm 37 years old and I've never really, I've always felt like it was selfish. Like I've always, always done for everybody but me. And there's all those cliche quotes about that shit, but truly like people who are in my circle know, like I will drop whatever and I will do whatever for you no matter what, like always. And that's how my siblings are with me. That's how I was raised. If you're in my circle, you're my family, you're my tribe, I don't give a fuck. Like, I'm going to be there for you. And now I'm like, okay, so who's there for me? Like, now I need you. Like, come through. And I have my group that has been, like, checking in. And and what do you need? What do you need? And I'm not used to that at all. I'm like, nothing. What do you need? You tell me what you... They're like, it's not about me. It's about you right now. And I'm, I'm learning to take that and not feel selfish about it. Like, that's where I'm at today. I'm like... Okay, so I need help. Okay, you can help me. And it's different. It's really different. I'm on the other end of it now. Loyal listeners will know that you can do a ton to get involved in the fight to free innocent people from prison. Check out Innocence Projects, prisoners' rights organizations in your community, and in particular, Proclaim Justice, the advocacy group that helped in Daniel's fight. Shout out to Jason Baldwin. Actually, Amanda says this all better than I ever could. So here she is. Donate, advocate, and learn. Educate yourself. Learn. Because even though, like, shit didn't happen to you personally, you know somebody who's been wronged by the justice system. Everybody knows somebody who's been fucked by them. And just know your rights, man. Know what to do in those scenarios, in those cases. That's what I want people to do. Don't ever think shit can't happen to you. Anybody, even the most normal fucking person, can get fucked. Let the Women Do the Work is a production from the Obsessed Network, and it's produced by Becca DiGregorio, Natalie Grillo, Patrick Hines, and me, Jillian Pensavalli. Our editor and mixer is Jennifer Swatek. Find me on Twitter at Jillian with a G, and remember, just let the women do the work. I do have one final question for you. Do you think you could tell Keith Morrison I said hi? Is that like I will do you think you I could? will definitely email or call Robert Dean, the producer, <laughs> to tell him yeah. to tell you. Just, you know, whatever we gotta do. I keep putting out calls for Keith to call me and you know, my phone's right here, Keith. I got nothing, but I'm gonna totally do it, Jillian. Don't tell me because I will do it until it's done. <laughs>